During World War I, when British soldiers would be captured by the Germans, they were taken to various prison camps. The most infamous of these was called Holtzminden, a landlocked uh, Alcatraz of sorts that housed the most troublesome escape-prone prisoners. That was a mistake on the part of the Germans because if people have already broken out of one prison and now you're putting them all into another prison together, you think they're probably going to talk and make plans. But uh, at Holtzminden, the commandant there was a boorish, hate-filled tyrant named Karl Niemeyer, who swore that none should ever leave. Of course, the uh, British prisoners there found great joy in irritating Karl Niemeyer, just like any good middle schooler would do. Uh, But uh, these were not middle schoolers, these were grown men, and they loved to irritate the commandant there. When he got angry, he would stomp around, throw a fit, Scream obscenities, turn beet red, and even shoot at the soldiers, causing them to have to duck for cover under their prison windows. I think someone like Karl Niemeyer is what we often think of when we, when our, in our minds when we consider God being full of wrath towards sin. Maybe he's red in the face and he's stomping around and he's irritated. Maybe you have something else in mind. What comes to your mind when you think about wrath. An example of road rage you've observed or participated in, perhaps, hopefully not. A coach throwing a chair or a player kicking over a water cooler, a movie character, a drunken family member at a holiday get-together. Our preaching portion of the Word of God today deals extensively with the fact that God is full of wrath toward sin. Please turn in your Bible to Revelation 15 and 16. This is on page 973. The easiest way to get to this, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, is just to open it up and go to the last couple pages and flip forward a few pages. To summarize what we've seen in the book of Revelation up to this point through the first 14 chapters, uh, in chapters 1 through 3, we see a vision of Christ to seven churches. We saw that this entire book from those letters is a gift from God to us to call Christians to persevere in great suffering, to walk in holiness in all of God's ways. Chapters 4 and 5 is a vision of worship in God's throne room. Chapters 6 and 7 laid out the seven seals. And then chapters 8 through 11 laid out seven trumpets, calling people a warning to the unrepentant, a sound of triumph to the repentant followers of Jesus. In chapters 12 through 14, we saw the extensive and intense conflict between Satan, the dragon, and Jesus, the lamb, and the people who are aligned with either one of those people. There's no one in between. Everyone is aligned either with the dragon or with the lamb. And now we're looking today in chapters 15 and 16 at the last set of sevens, or the last series of sevens. In this case, it's seven bulls, seven angels, pictured as holding seven bowls, pouring out seven plagues on the earth. We've noticed that each of the major sections of the book we've seen so far have ended with a vision of the last day of God's judgment, and today's passage is no different. This passage was written so that we, as God's people, would let the final outpouring of God's wrath drive you to persevere in faith. Let the final outpouring of God's wrath drive you 
to persevere in following Jesus. Please follow along as I read chapters 15 and 16 aloud. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Whatever translation you have will be just fine. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. 
And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. It is good for us to consider the wrath of God. It's good, not bad. It's good for you, not for your jerk of a boss. It's good for you, not for your jerk of a neighbor. It's good for you. It is good for you to contemplate the wrath of God. You might be more inclined to think this sermon is, this would have been the perfect day to bring your cousin, you know? This would have been the perfect day to bring your boss. While I would agree, it would have been a great day. Every day is a great day to bring friends to church. We have to remember that John wrote this document not necessarily to your boss, not necessarily to your cousin. He wrote this document to Christians. What in the world does thinking about the wrath of God do for Christians? It does the same thing the rest of the book is intended to do. It calls you to let the wrath of God compel you to persevere in following Jesus. Let the wrath of God drive you, be the drivetrain of the engine that propels you toward persevering in faith. John wrote this to first century Christians to help them interpret what had come before them and their present, just like it interprets for us what has come before us and our present. This helps us interpret real life in real time. John wrote this to first century Christians to build resistance against the siren call of sin and the deception, uh, the lies that the world tells us. John wrote this to encourage the oppressed and hated Christians that the day of justice will surely come. And yes, he wrote this to warn non-Christians who heard Christians reading this aloud, as we have just done, to tell them that today is the day to repent. You don't want to mess with what we just read about. I think it also tells us as Christians to not seek ultimate revenge. What I'm doing right now is kind of front-loading all the applications, many of the applications, so you can kind of think, oh yeah, I can see how this passage would make me realize I don't have to get revenge for myself. Somebody else has my back. God does. I think I'll be okay if on the last day God supports me. God has my back. God defends me. So this passage is a symbolic way of saying that God reveals his wrath against mankind. I think you gathered that. It's fairly clear. Uh, One of the clearer passages probably that we've read so far. Yes, there's symbolism in it. There's a lot of symbolism in it. But you've kind of gotten used to interpreting the symbolism by this time. You understand that the dragon talks about Satan. You understand that the Lamb is Jesus, and though he was only mentioned briefly at the beginning, you understand who that's talking about. But how do you respond to this idea that God is full of wrath? Does it strike you as strange, distasteful? Kind of like when you take a taste of soup and it's cold or not salty enough, or this is just not for me. Is that how you feel about the wrath of God? 
If you're here and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're already uncomfortable with this sermon, with the big idea of this sermon as a whole, that God is a God of wrath. And while I can understand your hesitation to a degree, would you rather worship a God who's indifferent to the evil that we see in our world? Would you rather just not believe in a God at all and just assume it's all going to come out in the wash at the end of history? Wouldn't you rather know that those who lynch people, those who enslave people, those who ruthlessly murder people, those who are serial rapists, and we could go on and on, those who perpetrated the Holocaust, wouldn't you rather know that if they don't repent, they will be judged? Or do you just want to assume all those things go away? Maybe they weren't really real. Maybe it wasn't really evil to walk through those times, to live through those experiences that perhaps some of you have had similar experiences yourselves. Does it satisfy your desire to see justice in real life, to just assume it all goes away? Surely you don't deny that there's great evil in the world. We can see that. You don't need to listen to the news for more than a couple of minutes to know that. So do you instead deny that the evil should be punished? We as Christians are not people who gloat in other people being judged. We do not take glee in eternal torment for God's enemies. But we do rejoice that God doesn't look the other way when people rebel against God. And often that rebellion shows itself, takes shape in sin against other image bearers against other people, in cruelty against other people. So again, I would just ask you, is there some other way that justice can be given if there is not a God who is full of wrath? This text shows us four realities about God's wrath. The first is that God's wrath is justified. And we're going to spend most of our time, we'll come back to chapter 15, we'll spend most of our time in chapter 16. So if that page, if that uh, section, chapter 16, is all on one page, you get to just have your passage right open to chapter 16 this entire time. God's wrath is justified. Why is it justified? Why is it okay that God is full of wrath? Because you can see, oh yeah, those people did deserve it, in other words. Why, where do we see that? In chapter 16, verse 2, we see that God's wrath is poured out on whom? Upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. In other words, it's poured out on idolaters. On people who refuse to believe that God is the Almighty. As we have sung about, as we have heard from the call to worship even in our scripture passages. They say, no, I'm going to worship somebody else. Thank you very much. God says he's going to pour out his wrath on the idolatrous. Chapter 16, verse 6 says he's going to pour it out on those who have shed the blood of saints and prophets. It's justified because these are murderers. The end of verse 6, it is what they deserve when you kill another person made in the image of God. You deserve to have your blood shed just as you shed blood. Maybe you remember the solemn sobering words from Matthew, 6, uh, Matthew 5, when Jesus says that to look on somebody with anger in our heart is to murder them ourselves. And so maybe you start to think, oh no, this is really bad for me. 
Because in my own heart, I have killed other people. So what do I do? How do I get out of this wrath? Because I'm reading this and I would say, yeah, I deserve to face the wrath of God. And I'm going to say this multiple times because I don't want anybody to miss it. I don't want anybody to think that I take glee in the wrath of God, but I will say I do take great delight and great joy knowing there's a way out of it. And again, we'll come back to this later on. But the way you get out of the wrath of God, the way that you are forgiven, in other words, for the fact that you have a murderous heart by the fact that we are all angry people, we have hate in our heart toward other image bearers, the way we get out of the wrath of God and avoid it is by faith in Jesus alone. So if you've never put your faith in Christ alone, we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church urge you and implore you, implore you today to turn in faith in Christ and repent of your sin. God's wrath is justified because these people did not repent. So it's because they're idolatrous, because they've shed the blood of believers in verse 6, and it's because they have not repented. You see that in verse 9? Throughout the Old Testament, when God brings great judgment on people, one of the reasons he does that is to call people to repent. How did these people who, are, who experience the wrath of God, how do they respond? The end of verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. How about the end of verse 11? They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. That's not what it was intended to do. The intended response was, God, please forgive me. Please relent, because I see how wicked I am. And instead, they did not. They cursed God, and they did not repent of their deeds. God's wrath is justified. God's wrath is also righteous. Verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. God's wrath is righteous. It is just It is pure and it is true. Verse 7, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In other words, God's not getting it wrong. God knows exactly who deserves His wrath and He doesn't send it to the wrong zip code. He knows where it's going. He knows who it's for. He knows who has done what. That means He knows everything about you. He knows what you've said, what you've done, what you've thought, where you've been. And he's willing to forgive you. But if you do not repent of your rebellion, you do deserve the wrath of God. The Bible tells us again and again. And some might be sitting here and thinking, boy, this just feels over the top. Like, I understand a little bit of wrath for a little bit of time on a few really bad people. But this seems over the top. And I would simply say, we and I have those kinds of thoughts because we and I don't understand the sinfulness of sin. There was a Puritan pastor in the 1600s who wrote an entire book called The Sinfulness of Sin about how terrible sin is, about how it is a rebellion against our Maker. This is maybe the question we need to answer. Whose world do you think you live in? If this is your world, sure, go live however you want. But if you were placed here by God, reflecting His glory by being made in His image. That means you don't get to make the rules. You don't get to decide how you're going to live. You live His way. You obey His Word. 
We struggle to understand the wrath of God because we struggle to perceive the sinfulness of sin. A few years ago, probably about a decade ago, actually, some of you may remember this, and if you were here on Wednesday night a few weeks ago, we talked about this then as well, I believe. It was either Wednesday night or Sunday school. Since it's in the same room, it's all a blur in my mind, but I'm pretty sure it was a Wednesday night. But we talked about the fact that about a decade ago, a song that we sing here regularly uh, was being put into a new hymnal. And the people who uh, were making that hymnal, putting it together for use in a variety of churches, perhaps uh, huge denominations across our country and around the English-speaking world, wanted to change one of the lines of one of the songs to make it a little more palatable. And they were telling the publishers, look, we want to put this song in, but we're going to change this one line. We're going to change the line, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. Is that okay with you? I mean, you'll get a huge royalty from all of these hymnals that we're going to sell to our denomination. Are you okay? We make that one little change. And the people who wrote the song said, no, we're not okay with that because we believe that the wrath of God is satisfied is a really important line in our song. This is the song In Christ Alone, written by Keith and Kristen Getty. We sing it regularly. And what that demonstrates is that it is more important for us to hold fast to the Word of God, to the truthfulness of Scripture, even when it's a little uncomfortable for some people's ears. You know, the New Testament talks about tickling people's ears. That seems to be kind of what you're doing by, oh, let's celebrate love. Everybody likes love. Nobody likes wrath and anger, so let's just take that out. It's important. It is critical that we as Christians, that we as Christians here at Brainerd, uphold the Word of God in its entirety. And don't turn away from the fact that God is a God of wrath. Thankfully, He's not just a God of wrath. He is a God of love and holiness and generous mercy toward us. So we celebrate God for all He is. But I did want to remind you of the importance of even little lines like that in the songs that we sing. And as a part of that, pay attention to the little lines that we sing because they were all chosen on purpose. And if it's a bad song, we're not going to choose it. What that song is talking about is the doctrine of propitiation, which is a word that shows up only a couple times in the New Testament and just means that God's wrath was satisfied by Jesus shedding his blood for you. So God's wrath is justified. Third, God's wrath is intense. Surely you picked up on this. Maybe, that was, maybe that's number one of what you noticed about the wrath of God here. This is intense. We're not talking about little sprinkles of, of wrath here and there. We're talking about serious doses of the wrath of God on serious sin. So verse 9, for instance, they were scorched by the fierce heat. Verse 10, people gnawed their tongues in anguish because of the wrath being poured out on them. Verses 12 through 16, you have this idea of the river Euphrates being dried up and you see these nasty frogs. I mean, frogs are gross as it is. Demon-possessed frogs is next level gross. And here they come from the dragon, that's Satan, the mouth of the beast, the mouth of the false prophet. So this unholy trinity that we've looked at over the last several weeks in chapters 12 through 14. And they're pictured as nasty frogs because in Egypt, again, this is going back to, I should have said this a long time ago. This is just playing off of the plagues, playing off of as in like kind of recycling the plagues from the book of Exodus and using them again, demonstrating God's holiness as he did against the people of Egypt when they would not let God's people go. And so this this frog idea in that culture, 
frogs were nasty there too. And here they're demon-possessed frogs and they were uh, symbols of false worship and so forth. And so here these unclean spirits, as demonic spirits performing signs, they are gathered together for battle against God the Almighty. And rather than finding where on a globe this is going to take place, I think what we need to understand is this is describing the wrath of God being poured out on rebels, God taking away any obstacles to people being gathered together against him, but being gathered together for his wrath. And so the fact that this river Euphrates is taken away, it's simply a way of saying nothing's going to get in the way of God's wrath. And while we're quick to assume all of this is happening on the last day, and I think in many ways it is, we also need to understand that God pours out his wrath at various times in different places on different people. He doesn't have to save it all up for the last day. And so we don't want to just be like, ah, I'm fine for now. The wrath of God can be poured out any time he very well pleases, and it is incumbent upon us to repent while we still have time. Maybe you'd say, well, this, if this sin were so bad, God would have already judged it. Clearly, God is okay with this because he's not doing anything about it right now. Or maybe he's being patient and merciful. Maybe he's giving you time. Maybe he's giving your loved ones time. But do not be mistaken, he will bring his full wrath to bear, and you do not want to fall into the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards said 250 years ago. The last section, verses 17 through 21, sounds very, very similar to the previous end of various sections we've looked at here in Revelation. At the end of chapter 6, and at the end of uh, end of chapter 7, I should say, beginning of chapter 8, and at the end of chapter 11. And so here it is. And this time, whereas before it was just kind of like, oh, there were some rumblings, and there's some thunder, and some lightning. And then it was like, and now there's an earthquake, and now there's a severe earthquake, and there's humongous hailstones falling. It's kind of like, just in case you weren't clear, the last day is going to be cataclysmic. And that's what John is describing for us here from this vision. God's wrath is intense. But as I have already hinted at, fourth of all, let me, let me recount what the four aspects of God's wrath are that we've seen. God's wrath is justified. God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is intense. But fourth, God's wrath is avoidable. Run to the Lamb. Yes, hallelujah. Run to the Lamb. This is where we can go back to chapter 15. Verse 1 is a summary of the whole picture we're looking at here, this whole vision, this great and amazing vision with the seven plagues. But verses 2 through 4 tell us who's singing about God. And it's all those in verse 2 who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Who's that? It's you. It's faithful Israelites who put their faith in a coming Messiah. It's faithful Christians after Jesus came who put their faith in him. It's all of us who have stood against persecution and tribulation and false teaching and the deceptions of this world, worldliness as a whole, which we'll talk about extensively next week in verse, chapter 17 and 18. 
But it's these people who are standing in front of God, playing that harps that God has given them. I think that's what it means with harps of God in their hands. And they're singing triumphantly. What's this whole Song of Moses deal? That's Exodus 15. What did God's people do when God brought them through the Red Sea and then collapsed the waters on their enemies? They celebrated. They rejoiced. They glorified God. And what did they sing? What we know as the Song of Moses from Exodus 15. I thought about having us read it now. I would just urge you to read this afternoon and celebrate the triumph that God's people sang when they saw God's glory vividly that day. Run to the Lamb to avoid the wrath of God. Again, they're singing the song of the Lamb, the song about the Lamb, the song that comes from the Lamb, but it's particularly about the Lamb because He's the one who rescues them from this cataclysmic wrath of God. And what do they say about God? You are great and amazing, O Lord God the Almighty. Your ways are just and true. You're the King of the nations. There's no one who compares with you. We saw in chapter 14 last week, who will not, let me read it here, chapter 14, verse 7, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him. So there are three responses. Fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. What do we have here in verse 4? Who will not fear you? Who will not glorify you? Who will not worship you? This is the right response when you see that God's wrath is avoidable by faith in the Lamb. And again, to the non-Christian in our midst, or to those uh, perhaps who listen at a distance, please understand my heart and what I'm sharing. I don't preach this sermon with glee over the fate of those who are recipients of God's wrath. Instead, I'm more like the guy running into a burning sky rise, and I run into the first floor, and there are people in there partying, and the music is loud, and everyone's having a great time, and I run in there and say, the building's on fire! Get out! And they're all dancing, and the music is thumping, and they're holding their drinks, and they're in a daze, and they're laughing at me because I'm telling them the building's on fire. And what I'm doing is yelling louder and saying, no, really, get out. The building's going to collapse. And who's this lunatic, they're saying. Who's this guy? Get him out of here so we can have our party. The music's just loud enough. People aren't hearing my voice. People are just intoxicated enough to laugh in my face. They pity me for not relaxing and having a good time on a Saturday night like they are. And I'm saying, no, you don't understand. Get out while you can. And maybe there are people who are like, nah, the party's too good. We'll stick with it. Nah, if the building does collapse, we'll hear it. We'll get out on time. Or some might even say, This party that we call life is so good, I'll just burn in hell. It will all be worth it in the end. Chapter 16, verse 15. is here in the English Standard Version in parentheses. It's a way of Jesus kind of breaking into the action, if you want to put it that way, of these revelations of God's wrath and saying, just a reminder, this is for you Christians. I'm talking to you. I'm not just talking about your evil boss. Many of these Christians had evil bosses. Many of these Christians were facing intense persecution in a whole wide variety of ways. 
But chapter 16, verse 15 reminds you, I'm not just talking to those people. I'm talking to you, Christians, and here's what you need to do. Jesus said, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on. To stay awake simply means to be ready for Christ's return. Know that he's going to return in glory and in judgment. And it will be glorious for those who have been saved and who are being saved and who will be saved. To use the three ways that the Bible refers to our salvation. But to be ready means to keep your garments on. It means to refuse, in other words, to compromise with the world. In this case, nakedness, being naked and being seen exposed is a symbol of lack of righteousness. Staying dressed then is a symbol of a lack of compromise with the world system. Again, we'll talk about that next week. What's it look like to not love this present world? Chapter 17 and 18 will portray for us. The wrath of God is a terrifying reality that we avoid only by persevering and by repentant faith in the Lamb. The wrath of Karl Niemeyer in the Holtzminden prison camp was ultimately revealed to be a sham. He was proven to be a fool, a liar, a murderer. One night after many months of preparation and work, dozens of soldiers escaped through a tunnel that they had meticulously planned and dug with spoons for months And Niemeyer had no idea that people were crawling out of his secure Alcatraz-type prison camp. No problem. Dozens made it out that night. Some of those soldiers, many of them, were recaptured, taken back, tortured, even worse. But nearly a dozen British soldiers escaped Germany and made it to safety in Holland. The wrath of Niemeyer had been avoided, and they sent telegrams to him mocking him saying, come to London, see what you're up for then. Christian, God is not like Karl Niemeyer. His wrath is just and righteous. His wrath has been satisfied by Christ for all who trust in him, and his wrath defends his people and compels you to keep going. One day, the final outpouring of God's wrath will be revealed, so let the certainty of that day drive you to persevere in faith. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we are sobered by this text. It is difficult to preach these words. But may we as your people keep alert. May we be people who stay awake, who keep our garments on so we will not be exposed on the last day. May we be people who refuse to bow, to cave to the pressures of this world, and even to the wrath of sinful man. May our eyes be fixed on the Lamb, the crucified and risen Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.